You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Romans 8, verse 18 to 25. This is God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealings of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. I have a question this morning. Who likes waiting? I'll wait. <laughs> I mean, who likes waiting? It's something that's part of life and something that just is in every corner, every facet of everything that we do. And it takes a lot of forms. There's a kind of waiting that's like a seemingly mild nuisance crossed with like medieval torture. You know, something like traffic or waiting at the DMV or MVD, we call it here, right? Or waiting up to round up your family and spouse to, so that you can go home. Um, this kind of waiting where the end result is not that dramatic, something normal, something that allows you to simply continue on with life. Then there's a kind of waiting, waiting that's like dread-filled because you just know the end result is going to be something terrible. Something as small as maybe getting a bad grade on a test and waiting for your parents to see that on your report card. Or something as tragic as waiting on the status of a loved one, waiting on their deathbed. In this kind of waiting, you're preparing yourself for the worst and bracing for impact. Just preparing your heart for the pain and the toll that it will take because you see that pain coming a mile away. But there's also a kind of waiting that's actually mildly enjoyable, fun, because it's, it's driven by the expectation that the end result is going to be something that is amazing, or that's the hope anyway. This is the, this is the kid on Christmas Eve night who's been watching the presents get piled up under the tree, waiting with such excitement that they can't even fall asleep that night. Or the moment of quiet. You know, we recently went to watch Hamilton. It's the moment of quiet after the crowd settle into their seats and everything goes dark. And it's that slight moment where you're just like anticipating the sh for the show to begin. It's this expectation that the waiting that you're doing, however long, one second, two seconds, 10 minutes, 10 years, that that waiting will lead to a fulfillment of my hopes, of my expectations, and it's going to be amazing. 
But in all these scenarios of waiting, good or bad, waiting is still hard. Waiting isn't something we choose to do. We don't see anybody ever list waiting as a hobby. Um, and in fact, nobody really likes waiting so that because we decided to create this difficult job with high demands and low pay and call them waiters and waitresses, right? So that they can instead wait for the food and wait for customers instead of us having to do that. The child on Christmas Eve waits, not because it's enjoyable to wait, not because they choose to wait, but because probably they're told to by their parents and maybe because they feel like whatever is under that tree, whatever is on the other side of that waiting is worth it. And we live much of our lives by making the same judgments moment by moment, big decisions. Um, as we manage our time, our money, our attention, our resources, our affections, and we decide if something is worth it or not, if, if it's worth the investment of these things to wait on that fruit that is going to bear. We wait because we have to, for one, and we wait because we see the value in the end result of that waiting. Um, as we are in the season of waiting in Advent, um, it's kind of the whole point of the season. We wait. God's people waited through generations of God's silence to finally witness the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of God incarnate, the Messiah who was going to deliver them from their troubles and usher in a brand new kingdom. And so we mirror that by celebrating this Advent season to be reminded of that waiting and to see our own waiting for Christ's return in light of the works and the promises of Jesus. And we celebrate and worship in this Advent season by waiting on Jesus. So our text today speaks of waiting, speaks to our waiting and the waiting that we do every day as we live out our faith in a broken world and particularly the waiting that we highlight in this Advent season. Um, Paul points us to waiting that is fueled by the hope of glory in Christ that is to be revealed, which is absolutely worth the wait. And through our text, we'll observe three ways in which our hope in Christ fuels us to wait. The hope of glory in Christ fuels us to wait expectantly, faithfully, and patiently. So first, um, the hope of glory in Christ fuels us to wait expectantly. Expectantly for what? What can we expect as the end result of this, this waiting? That's kind of the calculation that we do, right? Um, Paul starts this train of thought by pointing to the glory that is to be revealed to us in verse 18. And it's not even worth the comparison you can't even compare the current hardships because it's going to be that glorious. It's going to be that amazing. It's not even a comparison. It's filet mignon versus garbage. It's a five-star resort versus garbage. Uh, it's garbage, rubbish. Bad day for garbage. Um, not even worth comparing when you put it next to this amazing, glorious, better than the best thing you could ever imagine kind of glory that is to be revealed to us. To be clear, this isn't to say that our suffering is worthless like garbage. Paul definitely speaks to that in the rest of our text, but it's a bit of a theme that's 
come up throughout our Advent series, kind of wading through suffering and dealing with suffering in the midst of the, the world that we live in. Uh, but the current suffering, Paul says, when you put it side by side with what we're waiting for, it's not even a comparison. The promise is that big, that grand, that we can be assured of its glory, that, we, that it will absolutely be worth the wait, even through suffering. Let's think back to a time when you waited expectantly. When we wait expectantly, it's usually because something on the other side is going to be something great, something to be celebrated. Maybe it's the birth of a child, as the word quickly makes, makes us think. Perhaps it's expectation of a new job that's coming or a promotion or a great gift that's going to be that you asked for and that you know is coming because you're expecting that. Your parents are going to get it for you. We quickly look to the end first with the hope that what we desire for will come to life and that it'll make the waiting worth it. It'll make the waiting bearable. It'll make the suffering bearable and it'll make everything fulfilled. But oftentimes, we don't know for sure. We don't know the end goal, the end result. Sometimes, many times, things don't go as we planned, as we hoped. Plans fall through. People fail us. Our bodies fail us. Our, our hopes fail us. We fail. And our hopes are shattered. And we have to find something else to hope for. And it's just this kind of cycle that we get stuck in, finding new things to hope for and wait for. Up to this point in the letter to the Romans, Paul's been walking through the gospel story and reminding the people of the justification that we have in and through Christ, the redemption that they have received so that they can be made righteous and to be made co-heirs with Jesus. All the good stuff in Romans. Paul's been just walking through all that good stuff. And it's not too different from what we do here each week as we worship. We rehearse the gospel story together and we remind one another that God is holy and that we've sinned, but Jesus saves us and blesses us to be a blessing. We remind each other that not only do we have the good news of salvation, but we have the whole story from start to finish. We tell, we tell a complete story. We know how all of this ends. We have an in with the winner. And for what glorious purpose all of it serves but we so easily place our hope, knowing the, knowing the great story, we still place our hope in much lesser things, things that we ought to be far more uncertain about. And here we have God's reminder for his people that this future great glory that is yet to be revealed, you can be sure of this hope based on the rest of the gospel story that has already been told, that has been true, based on the character of God that's been faithful, that's been just, that's been good. And Paul goes on to describe this further, um, what exactly is entailed in this future glory. He's building up an appetite for this great thing that God will do. He's giving us more details of what it's going to look like. He just says future glory, but he kind of describes it out in verse 19. Verse 20, he says, Creation itself is eagerly waiting for God's children to be revealed for the adoption of God's people to become finalized because in the establishment of God's household in this way, in this adoption of his, his children, creation itself is going to be set free 
from bondage to corruption and obtain freedom. In other words, things are going to be restored back to how it was supposed to be. Because we really don't have to look far. We say this all the time. We don't have to look far to know that things aren't right in this world. Something's wrong, and even creation itself knows it. And part of this great promise of hope is that creation will be restored. You know, God's children, namely Adam and Eve in the beginning, were put in place partly to care for the rest of creation. That was part of their duties, their responsibilities, to oversee it, to foster its growth. They were to bear the image of God himself and to rule over all of creation in the same way that God does, to nurture and care, to nourish. And this future glory harkens back to a reality where that's true, where restoration and the freedom from corruption and brokenness is going to happen. Paul continues in verse 23. He says, but wait, not just the creation, not just the created things, but we who have God's spirit, his presence with us, the first fruits of his spirit, we are waiting for that adoption that's going to bring about this new creation. We're waiting for adoption so that we can be called sons and daughters of God. We can be called children, children of God. This restoration that is going to trigger the restoration of all things and the redemption of our bodies, that we who hope in Jesus will be made to become his children. That we'll be free of physical brokenness, that we'll be free of spiritual, mental brokenness, and that he would liberate us from sin. Expectant waiting calls for a great promise to be fulfilled. And what more certain hope is there than one that is found in a story, a completed story, which we know the glorious end to? The hope of glory in Christ fuels us to wait expectantly. And as we've talked about throughout our Advent series, Pete's talked about um, this a lot as we walk through Romans um, highlighting the thrill of hope. We actually, looking back on my sermon notes that I took, seems like we talked a lot about suffering and we continue to do today. Um, we talked about how Pete was mentioning that suffering isn't something to be avoided. Pete tells us, or Paul, sorry, Paul tells us here that suffering isn't something that can be compared with hope. So we say that suffering is the pathway to hope. Suffering is the dark and grim backdrop through which the light of Advent breaks through and ultimately shatters. Suffering is necessary. Suffering is there. We can't avoid it, and we shouldn't avoid it. The Advent gives us hope in Jesus and points us to the expiration date of suffering and the renewal of all things and the restoration of all things. This is the great hope of glory in Christ that fuels us to wait expectantly. This is the thing that we're to grow in expectation for, longing for eagerly, as the passage says, because it's going to be that great. Many times in this world, we look around and promises are made and we put hope in different things that fall short. But this is hope this is a promise that is assured 
and certain. And so we can wait expectantly with eager longing in our hearts. We're also fueled by the same hope to wait faithfully. And faithfulness in the face of suffering is difficult and perhaps is the true test of faith. C.S. Lewis has a book called A Grief Observed. Uh, It's not a novel or some sort of thoughtful theological observation, much like his other works, but more of a series of a few journals that he wrote, wrote down different thoughts in. And in it, he is wrestling with grief, uh, particularly losing his wife to cancer and how he's processing that grief. And it's written so bitterly in part that he published it under a pseudonym. And he addresses the kind of suffering that he's endured. And you see glimpses of doubt that he wrestles with. And in a section where he's ranting, he talks about how you don't really know how much you believe in anything until it's tested as a matter of life or death. It's easy to believe in a rope to be strong when you're only using it to tie it around the box. But if you had to hang by that same rope off of a cliff, then you'd really discover for the first time how much you really trusted and how much, you have, how much faith you have in that said rope. And likewise, our faithfulness is tested. It's really tested in the face of adversity, in the face of suffering and difficulty that we see all around us, that we see in our lives day to day, suffering, pain, corruption, brokenness, weakness. And the thing is, left to ourselves, we tend to respond to adversity by shifting our faith from the hope of God's promises and we shift it onto ourselves. We put that responsibility on ourselves because we're repulsed by suffering. We avoid pain. We avoid discomfort as much as we can. We run from it. We see suffering not as a pathway for God's hope, but as hindrances to his blessing. And we've been so programmed to think that blessings look a certain way. We've been so programmed to think that suffering only looks a certain way. You see, blessings, those are all the good things in my life. Those are all the things that make me comfortable and that I enjoy. And sin, that's all the rest. That's all the bad stuff, all the suffering, all the brokenness, all of that. We have this paradigm that blessing and curse look a certain way. But what if the hope of glory in Jesus doesn't fit into our paradigms? What if God's glory transcends all of that? What if God's blessings are sometimes the sorrows that we experience? What if some of the things that we consider blessings actually lead us away from Jesus and into complacency and brokenness? What if the hope of God's glory is something that actually shines brighter in the face of suffering? If suffering and brokenness is really the backdrop to the light of Jesus, to the light of Advent, to him coming, then a faithful response doesn't call for an avoidance of suffering. A faithful response to the hope of Advent calls for a faithful groaning, a lamenting unto the Lord. We see this word repeatedly throughout the portion of this letter. Creation is groaning 
we're groaning inwardly. Everyone and everything is groaning together. And in verse 23, he describes a groaning that is so painful that he describes it to the pains of childbirth. Why is that a faithful response? Why is this groaning a faithful response? Groaning to God or even at God, just like C.S. Lewis's book about his own grief, groaning to God is an act of trusting in that glorious hope. It's filing a complaint, not with the store manager or the shift manager, but with the CEO of the whole thing. It's taking up the issue with the one who can actually do something about it, who, has, who actually has the power to do something about it. And that, in fact, he's already doing something about it even before we bring it to him. We see this biblical response modeled often in the Psalms as King David and other psalmists lash out at God about their circumstances, about the persecution that they're facing, about the wars that they're in. And we see this even echoed by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a response that allows us to express our full disappointment and discontent, not of God, but of the brokenness that surrounds us, that we witness, that we experience and feel. It's seeing things as God sees them, as we recognize the sin that corrupts everything and that we believe in a new creation that will be certainly better. Waiting faithfully does not mean that we need to have a rock-solid faith that can never be shaken. Waiting faithfully with the hope of glory in Christ means that we will waver, probably a lot. And instead of looking to ourselves to muster up that faith enough to believe in him for long enough, instead of that, we look to Jesus who was, who is, and ever will be faithful. And we look forward to the day that we will never waver again and that we can fully trust and love him because of his power. So we wait faithfully through groaning, through our lamenting, through our prayers of lament to God. And lastly, the hope of glory in Christ fuels us to wait uh, patiently. We often interchangeably use the word patience with long-suffering. And anytime we see patience in the text, we can assume there will be suffering. So patience always comes in a cheerful, cheerful spot, it seems, but um, it's actually a hard thing. The groaning expresses some of the suffering, but the hope of Jesus is meant to point us to a better reality, a reality that we don't yet see. Paul points out in verse 24, who hopes for what he sees? And actually, Pete this time mentioned this idea a few weeks ago, right? Who hopes for the obvious thing? Who hopes for something that's attainable? Nobody hopes for the sunrise because we know exactly when it rises and sets. In fact, as Arizonans, right, we don't really hope for the sun much at all. <laughs> we definitely know it's there most of the time of the year, uh, most of the year, and sometimes it's a bit too much. Um, we hope for things. Real hope is hoping for things that are seemingly out of reach, 
something that isn't seen, Paul says. Absolute freedom from sin. Absolute freedom and destruction of brokenness, of corruption. Adoption of sinners as children to a holy God. Redemption of our bodies, our broken bodies that are constantly being broken down. These are just some of the realities that we can hope for as a future glory of God. These are all things that we do not yet see. It's hard to see this. These are descriptions of a reality that we don't get to experience on a day-to-day basis. It's almost a contradiction to say all of this because the hope of Christ is supposed to help us wait expectantly of this new reality and it's supposed to help us wait faithfully through our current brokenness. Uh, But waiting patiently, waiting long-sufferingly means that both our current and future realities, while they might be contradictory, completely opposite to each other, can be true at the same time. It means that God recognizes that this suffering will seem like it's going to last, that it's not going to pass. It means that God sees us, that, it's, that this suffering might endure longer than we'd like, It means that you may even lose this earthly life at the hands of this suffering and never taste a new reality in this earthly life. But it also means that the new creation is certain and that there will be a restoration of all things and that God has overcome death and sin to do so, to make sure that happens. It means that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. John Calvin once pointed out in this passage that these are not death pangs, but birth pangs. It's the God of hope and glory giving new life to a new creation, new birth, where this reality, this new reality seems so out of reach. It seems too good to be true but in fact will be made true in certain. It's impossible for us in the midst of the world's brokenness to truly see this reality in full, but we can wait patiently because of the hope of Jesus. Now that I've reached my quota for the word waiting, (laughs) um, the advent which is basically waiting, um, (laughs) gives special time for us to reflect on the drama of God's glory and, and the gospel story. The perfect, holy creator of the universe, God himself, saw our afflictions, saw our sin, saw the brokenness that we, we are in the midst of, and he entered into our mess willingly, obediently, so that he could live the life that we should have lived. He came to us as a child to be the light of the world who gives the thrill of hope to a weary and hurting and suffering world. Many of you have probably met our pups, Oscar and Kogo, who just turned two uh, these past few weeks. Um, And for a while now, they've been able to sit and walk and Um, Not talk, but do basically everything that most dogs can do. 
Um, and they're considered normal adult dogs now because they're two. Uh, for me, that really puts into context how helpless we are as babies, right? We consider babies advanced when they can do maybe 5% of the things, 10% of the things that an adult can do. Um, and yet, I think it's striking that Jesus appears to us and dwells with us, not as some sort of superhero figure, God figure who just comes in and swoops in and does everything, but he comes as a baby. He brings the hope of future glory. He brings the light of the world into this world in the midst of darkness as a baby. Why? So that he could live out and share in every aspect of our broken bodies. He experienced cuts, scrapes, bruises, splinters, piercing. He experienced all of the pain, all of the hurt, emotionally, mentally, just as we do. Perhaps more importantly, all of the punishment that we should have taken on, he experienced. He fully died at a death that we couldn't die. Not because we don't know how to die, we can do that, but because he alone was the perfect righteousness, the perfect sacrifice that could atone for the sins of mankind. And he rose from the grave to show us that death and sin and brokenness and suffering are not a threat. That his promises are certain, they're sure. And the hope that he gives us in his promises can be counted on. He points us to a new and better reality, which has already begun in part but we will soon see in all of its glory, in all of its fullness. He gives us himself. He gives us hope so that we can wait with the hope of glory so that our waiting here on earth as we wait for Jesus would not be passive, that it would not be wasted, that we're not just waiting, fiddling and just whatever else, just sitting around but actually waiting actively, waiting that is so clearly marked by the hope of Jesus that we would always remind ourselves of one another of this hope constantly and that we would point others to the same hope that we enjoy. As we navigate through suffering, as we navigate through difficulty, which is plentiful in all of our lives, I'm sure, we wait on Jesus not to magically come and fix everything because we know that what he has promised is even better than what we could hope for, what we could imagine. And so we wait expectantly for something that is going to be amazing, something that is going to be glorious. We wait faithfully, enduring the suffering, enduring the pain as he has. And we wait patiently because we know it's going to be a long journey but we know the end will be absolutely worth it. Church, wait with hope in Jesus.